So I encourage you to get your technology or your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to be reading in just a moment, as well as James. So if you have your normal Bible, you'll have to keep your fingers between two of those books. If you have your technology, uh, some of you will be able to move there rapidly. All right, 1 Timothy 5, James, I believe it's chapter 2. I'll be reading from momentarily. We started a series last week entitled, I Love My Neighbor. Let's say that out loud together. Ready? I love my neighbor. One more time. I love my neighbor. I really, I love my neighbor. You say, you don't know my neighbor. <laughs> well, all right. Maybe the one beyond that. All right. No, I love my neighbor. And, and neighbor is something more than just your next door neighbor. It's really loving those around you. And I mentioned to you last week that we need to define exactly who our neighbor is. And, and we left you with the definition that our neighbor was the one who had a legitimate and immediate need that only you could meet. Remember that? A legitimate and immediate need that only you could meet. That was the Good Samaritan. So Jesus asks us the question, are you personally being compassionate? Are you personally, you know, keeping your radar open to those who are around you who may need a compassionate moment from you as you're walking by because that is your faith. Follow me? That's your faith. Now, we wanted to follow up, and I don't know if all of these are like part one, part two, part three, but, but what, naturally, what naturally springs out of last week's message is the one I'm sharing today that I've entitled Refusing to Enable Your Neighbor refusing to enable your neighbor because i want to talk about the nature of true compassion because i mentioned last week that sometimes all of us probably have a story where we were compassionate and we were conned we were compassionate and we were used now it's better to err at times on the side of mercy than to be cynical but at the same time you don't want to be used or manipulated in uh, in order you know, to, to exercise compassion. And so I wanted to talk about that and how our faith plays into the refusal to enable our neighbors. Now, I realize because of time and the material that I have, because I started studying this thing and the material was just like downloaded big time. And so I'll tell you right off the bat, uh, I'm going to get to a place where you're going to see, and, and I'm not going there yet, Jerry, just so you know, but th th I give you 10 characteristics of an enabler. I ain't going to get to all 10. So don't panic. I'll probably spring into next week because next week I'm going to be talking about telling the truth to your neighbor. So it, it all fits together. I just didn't want you to panic because I understand uh, we can't be here all day. Uh, but, but we're going to answer some of these questions. And then, and then the last week, I might as well give you the heads up. The last week's message in this whole series is basically how do, how do we live in the neighborhood? And we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit and, and how, we're, how even though we're living in this hostile, manipulative world, we, we've got to live out of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, just because our neighbors are crazy and, and, and they come screaming at us doesn't mean you know, we scream at them. How do we live in this neighborhood? So all of these are going to get covered. But let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want to read you some verses that never get preached on. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 20 to 22 here we go paul writes those who are sinning 
rebuke in the presence of all. Isn't that a good church growth plan right there? Rebuke them in the presence of all, he writes, that the rest also may fear. Isn't that true? Tyler used to always say to us, he said, you know, Dad, the reason I was such a good kid is because I always listened to you take care of Clay, who's the older one. We'd scream at Clay, and and something in Tyler said, I don't want to get screamed at like that. So I'll let Clay take the rebuke, and I'll learn from it. That's what Paul is basically saying. He says, and he was telling it in the context of really what to do with an accusation with an elder, etc. And so there's some context to it. But basically he was saying, rebuke them in front of everybody, and that way everybody else gets a clue. And they say, I, I don't want that. All right. And then he says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Now, he's serious here, isn't he? He's, he's commanding something. That you observe these things without prejudice. Doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself is that not an interesting is that not an interesting passage all right now jump to the book of james chapter 2 i want to read these passages because james says something real similar i'm going to read uh, verse 1 of james chapter 2 and then i'm going to leap over to verse 8 so verse 1 then i'm leaping to verse 8 he writes my brethren do not hold the faith of our lord jesus christ the lord of glory with partiality Interesting. I'll get to that word. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Interesting passages. Talking about refusing to enable your neighbor. Now, these passages, I think, are especially relevant in our current church culture because we're kind of in the age that everyone is wanting to emphasize these words, which are biblical words and terms, but they're words like grace and mercy and love. And how many of you know we all need grace and mercy and love? Absolutely. Christian concepts. The challenge is making sure that we're always defining and implementing those very important attributes in the way that God intended. Nobody's going to argue that as Christians we should be uh, noted for our great love and compassion for people. The early church was known, as the church should be all through the ages, of having compassion towards people. But how many of you ever considered that for every reality that is found in the kingdom of God, there is a counterfeit? Is that not true? I mean, I mean, any reality that's in the kingdom, the devil will do his best to counterfeit it or to convolute it or to twist it in order that he can disseminate error that will ultimately detour what the Lord may want to do in people's lives. And so it shouldn't surprise us that, that just as there are real teachers, there are false teachers. Just as there are real apostles, there's false apostles. Just as there are real prophets, there's false prophets. And I could go back and forth with all the different counterfeits. Just as there is a real love, there is a false love. Just as there is a real grace, there is a false grace. And I want to suggest to you that there is a false compassion, a pseudo-compassion, that the enemy sometimes tries to saddle us with that corrupts what true compassion is all about. 
So let's talk about what is false compassion. False compassion. False compassion is what I define as enabling. Now, I suspect a lot of you have heard the word enabling or the noun, an enabler, or the one who is being enabled. And it's associated in psychology with the concept of codependency. Now, I'm not preaching psychology here. I'll get back to the word. I'm just telling you kind of how it's identified in the world that there are these codependent relationships. And codependency is when we, we, one person helps another person when the person getting helped really doesn't need that kind of help and it's not the help they really need. And so what happens is, is we use this term codependent when we see this relationship between two people and one of them is almost facilitating the problem that's happening in the other one. That's codependency. That's what psychologists call it. Now, Scripturally, we would probably label that better false compassion. False compassion is not helping or leading people to genuine freedom or to divine order, but rather it's a type really tacitly, or, or and the word tacit, it means, it means sort of shadowly, you're endorsing the very behavior that's causing the people to be dysfunctional, but you're doing it in the name of love. You love this person so much, you're facilitating or enabling what it is they're doing, thinking you're being compassionate or helping them at that particular moment. Now, let me just bring it up to date sort of in church terms. I think the 21st century church has bred spiritual enablers. Instead of leading people through the word to real freedom, we accommodate their sinful behavior, telling ourselves that we can't judge them or, or we can't suggest that anything's wrong in their life, lest we appear unloving. We, we appear like we're being judgmental. Now, as it is with any concept that the enemy twists, there can be nuances when it comes to the application of genuine compassion. And, and I, I wrote this down, that the gap between truth and error can sometimes be narrow. So my purpose, hear me, is not to shut down our compassion. My wife just gave us this vision she got, and we're going to exercise genuine Christian compassion, and we need to. I'm going to be meeting with the guys, and we're going to have to figure out what can guys do to serve people in a genuine act of compassion. So do not walk away and in any way think that, that we're tossing out genuine compassionate acts. But it's, but it's a far cry... Uh, to be manipulated or abused by a culture that is demanding that you celebrate their every decision in the name of love. If you loved me, you would. How many girls have heard that in the backseat of a car? If you loved me, you would. Well, that's, that's really one that's wanting a false compassion exercise to them. If you love me, you'd let me do this. If you love me, you'd give this to me. If you love me, I can do this. God, if you love me, you shouldn't have that big of a problem with what I'm living and what I'm doing because God is love, right? But how many of you know things are being twisted? Now, these passages I read to you, we have a springboard in this message which is super relevant, and that is we love our neighbor but we're not to enable our neighbor's dysfunction and brokenness. Following me, we love our neighbors, but God has never asked us to enable what is destroying them. 
Our love leads people to freedom. Now, here's the ten characteristics of which I'm probably only going to get to five. But, but the top five I put down here are probably the most important ones I can leave with you today. So, the ten characteristics of actually enablers. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I just think even in our congregation, and again, uh, I understand that we've had our challenges, and uh, maybe everyone here has their act together. But I think God's calling us to love like we've never loved before. But I think it's going to be important that we understand what that love looks like. I want to encourage you even to write these down. Uh, I can assure you that in every family tree, there is an enabler and one who is enabled. Almost without question. Uh, we have developed in the church a theology of enablement. We don't call people to change or to repentance anymore. We call them to be enabled. Come to our church. We'll love you no matter what. Well, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but let's make sure you know what you're saying. You know, we'll, we'll walk with you forever, however you are. Well, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Stick-to-itiveness, love, it goes the extra mile. I got it. But let's make sure that as, as one who's being walked with, that we're walking them the right directions. Because you can't be enabling. Yes, we love, but you can't be enabling. I personally, this is what I personally believe. I think preachers who dodge tough passages or passages that challenge current cultural sin are in fact enabling. If I don't tell you the whole Bible or, or teach to you all the truth and, and you miss that, then what I'm doing is, is enabling you to continue to live in a way that you're either ignorant to or uh, that I don't want you to know for fear of alienating you. In fact, I think a pastor that does that is enabling his community. Because my job as a pastor is not to enable my community in their sin, but to call them to righteousness in order that they might be truly free in Jesus Christ. That's our job. Now, we do that in a kind, gentle, patient, joyful... I mean, I could go down the list of the fruit of the Spirit, but nonetheless, we do this in a way because that's what we're bringing people to. The Spirit of the Lord showed me something as I was preparing this message. It's kind of nice to have the wells of revelation opening again to me in, in so many ways. Um, but the Lord showed me what I needed to be watching for when revival shows up. This is good. Revival's coming. And he showed me what to watch for when revival shows up. And I feel like this is what he said. I can't say that, I, you know, it's not like you hear this audible voice, but I felt this strong impression. I felt like it was watch people carefully as they come to experience revival. It was like he said, watch the harvest. There's a difference between the desperate and the repentant. I'll say that again. There is a difference between the desperate and the repentant. Let that sink in. Because as we reach out to legitimately needy people who need our compassion, you need to remember the difference between these two words. Lots of people come to church. I've seen this through the years. You know I've pastored a lot of decades now. And you know it's true. People oftentimes, they'll come to church or they'll come to the Lord because they're desperate. They're at the end of their rope. They have nowhere to turn. Life is collapsing. 
And here's what we do as the church. We hope that in that moment of pain and in that moment of desperation, they'll open up their heart to Jesus Christ and experience his power, his transformation. They'll embrace his ways. But hear me, desperation does not always translate into repentance. The worst thing that can happen when the harvest comes through our doors is to enable them in the name of false compassion. The prodigal son came back, and it's a story that Jesus gave, not just because he was desperate in a pig pen and he'd spent his inheritance. Those were definitely problems, and he was definitely in a desperate situation. But what was different for him was, he said, my servants even have it better in my father's house. I would go to be a servant, and he said, because I have sinned against God and against my dad. That's the difference. That's the difference. It doesn't mean that we're mean. But it does mean that we're integral with the truth. This is what a desperate person says. A desperate person says, my tail is in a sling. I'm in trouble. I'm in pain. I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't want anything to do with this. Somebody get me out of this. I need someone to help me get out of my pain. That's a desperate person. And hear me, God will use those moments. And what they do is they come to the Lord and they say, Lord, get me out of my pain. And the Lord wants to hear me. It's not that the Lord doesn't want to, but the key is if that's all you're looking for, then what happens is once you get relief, you will leave the Lord. That's what happens. People get, I've seen this so many times, people broken, desperate, you know, all sorts of things. And, and they come and they say, I want Jesus to help me. And Jesus begins to help get them out. And then all of a sudden they get relief and sayonara, there they go. Because they're desperate, but not truly repentant. The repentant say, I've sinned against God. And man, I'm broken because of my sin. I've been prideful. Nobody can help me but Jesus. I'm crushed by my sin. I need His grace to forgive me. And then I need His grace to empower me in a new direction. So that's why Jesus, well really both John the Baptist and Jesus, came with this word on their lips looking at desperate people. He said at one time, he looked at the folks and he said, now bear the fruits of repentance. Why did Jesus say that? He says, because I know you're desperate, but will your desperation lead you to repentance? Now, here's the key when we get back to enablement and what Paul says. Paul says this. He says, you've got to apply the gospel without partiality. You, you, you've got to apply the gospel in such a way that when it's applied, you don't apply it one way to one person and one way to another person. In other words, you aren't like maybe hammering one person and then the next person you're, you're, you're enabling. That's what he begins to say. Lest, he says, you begin to share in the sins of those persons. Whoa, my, my, my. Now let's talk about that a little bit. I just want to give you some points of enablement. Not that I think necessarily anyone here is enablers. Uh, you, you may be and I just don't know it. But, but I want to share it because this is going to help us as we work with people, especially in the upcoming harvest. Uh, characteristics of enablers. Number one I mentioned is biased or they exercise partiality. Partiality is a word that you can you can exchange for bias. In other words, an enabler 
treat certain people differently than they do other people because they lack a certain objectivity when it comes to certain people. Now, you see this mostly with how parents work with their kids. In other words, every kid is a tyrant except theirs. All right, I'm just going to let this lie out here. But Paul says it doesn't matter. You cannot apply the gospel with partiality or bias. And it's hard because you love your kids. You love them. But when, when, when it comes to applying precept, they don't get an exemption. See, this is what we're talking Or you share in those sins. Let me read some interesting verses. Leviticus 19.15. It says, You shall do no injustice in, in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So, in other words, there's an appropriate place for judgment, but our judgment is made in righteousness. In other words, we, we evaluate it objectively. Our love does not cause us to be non-objective. Deuteronomy 117. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. So here's what's great, and this is really liberating, and that is even when I teach you all God's word, and even when it comes across rather direct, the interesting thing is your beef really isn't with me. It's with him, say. Because we can't be partial. Proverbs 24, 23 says, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. <laughs> what, a, what an incredible verse. We need to be careful that we judge things rightly. This, I, I mean, I'll, just, I'll give you an example. I mean, people do this all the time. Uh, you know, we'll... We'll be so, because I'm engaged in this arena, we are so politically partisan that we'll let certain uh, candidates off the hook and declare them righteous but because, because they're of the same party we are. But then we'll, we'll judge others from another party who do the exact same thing and we'll, we'll have moral outrage. God, God is saying you can't do that as a believer. You can't look at one and declare them righteous because you just happen to like their policies. And, and, and this is what I fear in the church. We, we baptize people who aren't really baptized and declare them righteous. And God says here is that him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. Now, it happens in all sorts of areas. I've already mentioned, we, as parents, we can do this with our kids. Listen, pastors have a hard time. This is what pastors have a hard time with. And that is you have significant donors and you say to yourself, if I apply the gospel to these people and they don't like it, then they'll take their big bucks and they will leave. Now, that's easy maybe for everyone to say in a congregation, well, that shouldn't bother you. Well, when you got bills to pay, doesn't it bother you if your employer doesn't pay you? And, yeah, I mean, you'd be bothered. You'd be bothered. You know, I'm a human being. I'm bothered too. I've got, uh, I've got one last child in college. I got my bills to pay. I mean, it's, you think about these things. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it is a thought. But the Bible says that without partiality, these things have to be applied. So whether, whether one, now here, here's the thing is, you have to be obedient. It doesn't matter whether your tithe is small or whether your tithe is large. The fact of the matter is that you're tithing in obedience. And one person's tithe does not merit uh, exception or partiality because of another person's. Are you following me? So that, that's what it means in some ways for pastors. 
Spouses can lack objectivity with one another at times. So much so that instead of applying the word in a relationship, we enable the relationship. Rich people do not have a different gospel. Your kids do not have a different gospel. Your spouse doesn't have a different gospel. It's especially egregious when you enable some to do whatever they want and then you want others to be held accountable. God says that is partiality. And that's not how we work. So bias, number two. Again, I'm going to hurry. Enablers tend to appease rather than address. An enabler predominantly wants to manage the problems of the dysfunctional rather than address the problem. And there's a a tendency, is there not in all of us? And I would suppose there can be a legitimate place of wanting, wanting to help people and being patient with people. But a lot of times it's procrastination. I have found out that for me, there's, there's a, a discernment that I have to come to between procrastination and patience. I think there's patience, but then I think there's procrastination. And we put off something we know we should do. And sometimes it's delaying the inevitable, which usually exasperates the problem. To constantly appease people in rebellion is really feeding the problem and delaying God's work in their life. You know, sometimes when we're enabling people, all you're doing is delaying what God wants to do. You're actually sort of, sort of subverting it or, or covering it or, or somehow uh, lengthening what God really would like to accomplish in their life. Because the truth of the matter is sometimes people need to be left to themselves in order that they are not really by themselves, but they're left to God. And he can do what he needs to do. Okay, number three. An enabler oftentimes blame shifts. I want to tell a story, sweetie, and uh, you'll know where I'm going with this. This was way back years and years and years ago when we were still in school. We were in Ludlow, Missouri. And I had to, I, I got to tell you this story, I had to correct a young boy in the middle of service. He was, he was like four years old or something like that, maybe, maybe less, maybe three years old. Uh, his name was Austin. I'll never forget this story, Austin. And Austin, his parents kept Austin in service. And, you know, and believe me, as a pastor, I get kids. I've had kids. I've had to raise kids. I've taken my children to service. I've had to deal with my kids. So I I don't think I don't get it. I get it. But Austin, Austin really uh, was the center of attention almost every Sunday. Because his parents just didn't understand that while they thought Austin was cute, Austin was keeping everybody else's attention off of what God maybe wanted to say to them. See, it's not all about Austin. And so Austin was in, it's a country rural church. You know, you're in a town of about 120 people, so everybody knows everybody, and everybody's in everybody's business, and everybody's related to everybody. And so Austin's doing his thing, and we'd gone, I'm not kidding you, it, it, it was months and then one Sunday, no joke, they were pews, only they weren't, they weren't these cushioned pews. They were hard. You remember those old wooden hard pews? And his parents were somewhere in the back, but they were letting Austin down front. We're talking the middle of service now. Front row, and Austin has his boots on because it's out in the country. And Austin is pounding his cowboy boots up and down, standing up, walking down the front pew. I, I walking up and down right in the middle of the message he's doing this and i'm just watching this and no one's moving now now granted i'm probably 24 years old at the time and maybe there was another way to have handled this maybe there was but it just had reached the point where finally i just stopped and i said austin you need to go find your mom and dad 
And Austin looked at me, and he said, no. So here we are. And I said, well, then, Austin, we're going to wait here until Mom and Dad come find you. And finally, Mom slipped out, came down, grabbed him, and uh, then we went on with service. And I'm getting there. Mom was obviously embarrassed. Honestly, should have been. Should have been. But after service, instead of being able to deal with me, and instead of being able to deal, and and I'll tell you what she was dealing with. She was dealing with the fact that she had been enabling Austin for months to do whatever Austin wanted to do. She was an enabler. Why else would you just let him do that? Nobody else was thinking it was that cute. Every, and she was disturbing everyone else's ability to hear from God. Do you understand that she was showing partiality? If, if somebody else would have come in the sanctuary and stood in front of her waving their arms at her, she would not have liked that. Is, am I not true? But because it was Austin, she could enable. And then what happened afterwards, my wife was down in kids' church, and she's coming up the stairs, and mom blasts her up the stairs Uh, accusing her of somehow making me do that. She didn't even know what was going on in service. She wasn't even in service most of the time. She was down with the kids. I was the one, and I was the one that did it. But that's what an enabler does. An enabler never sees the problem as the one who's being enabled. It's everyone else is the problem. Everyone else is the problem. It's never the addict that's the problem. It's everyone else that just can't get over it or doesn't understand it. We've got to understand when the harvest comes, they're going to have to be guided and directed. Yes, and, and love, but we've got to lead them the right direction. I mean, teachers face this. Pastors face this. I heard Anna chuckle. Is that you, Anna? Do you face this? It's never, it's never Johnny or Sally's issue, right? It's your issue. Yeah, I see. I, I, we know how this works. People leave even our church because they were enabled and they blame shift. That's why many ministries organize their ministry we just ought to call it a ministry of enablement. Whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, however you want to live, just come on, be with us. Because people don't have to change, they just everybody has to feel good. Paul says you're sharing in the sins of that person. Is that not heavy? Number four, I know i got to hurry, we're almost to the hour. There's a responsibility shift, an enabler will shift responsibility at times, even attack the victim. You, that's exactly what happened, who they were enabling. <laughs> Again, I'm going to tell a quick little story because I, I wasn't there, but I, I'm sorry this has happened to you. But you know why this ha- I, the Lord, I'm, as I'm doing this, I know why the Lord said it. It's because you have genuine compassion. You're the one that drives by that neighborhood and looks at the guy with no legs and says something's got to happen. You have true compassion. And so what the enemy does is, is that is that you get attacked based on the fact that you're wanting people to be helped, really helped. But the fact is, the enablers, the enablers see true compassion, true love, as, as somehow being uh, uh, out of bounds or, or being harsh or being rough. I'm here to tell you, it's twisted on you through the years, not because of a bad spirit, it's twisted on you, it's because the enemy's trying to gig you out of your true compassion. And I'll never forget, because what happened was, and I can tell you, she was at a baseball game with 
one of our kids when they were growing up, I think it was Clay, and one of the kids on the opposite team, and, and, and I think you were cheering or something or the game was over, and, and this is the other team, and the kid's running off the field and sees Tracy, and I can't do this, but I'll say this. He looks her straight in the eye, lifts up his arm, and he flips her off. You know what I'm talking about? He's six years old. Can you imagine getting... And so, of course, most of you know Pastor T. She grabbed this young gentleman at six years old and takes him to his parents. Now, think about this for just a minute. If, if somebody brought my children to me and said, your son, who is six years old, just flipped me off, and I don't think that's right, I was, I'm the first thing I'm not going to do is mix it up with the dude that brought me my child. But what happened is, is that not only dad, but all of dad's friends encircled you and began to threaten you for, for bringing up the point that your son doesn't have enough sense not to put up his middle finger in the middle of a public baseball field. I've waited about 30 years to tell this story. I was just twisted when I heard that story. Lawsuits. 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 You want to talk about enablement. Now, I don't know where this young boy is today, but I guarantee you if his parents were parenting him in such a way that he could stand in the middle of baseball fields and put up his hand and give the bird to whoever wants to see it, I wouldn't be surprised if he's not in jail somewhere today. Or dead. Because you can't do that to everybody and have somebody kindly take you to your dad. Somebody might have whooped his tail one day. Classic enablement. Proverbs 17, 15. Look at this. I'm just reading Bible. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 18, 5. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or overcome the righteous in judgment. I can just tell you in that particular story that, that if anyone had done that to that family it would have been on number five and we're going to have to end right here i'm done enablement now we're going to talk next week about speaking the truth to our neighbor but i just want to leave you with this fifth one and that is an enabler will rescue the offender enablers rob the enabled of the appropriate motivations that would bring real change and repentance in other words what happens is if we are an enabler we want to mitigate the appropriate suffering that the one who is dysfunctional or in sin might receive. We want to mitigate that and remove consequences from inappropriate decision and behavior. How many of you know, this is how we learn in life. If I put my hand on a hot stove and it's burned, I won't do that anymore. Right? That's our problem. We, we, we want to take away the burn from those we're enabling so they can continue to just slap hot stoves thinking that it's just normal to slap a hot stove. We want to mitigate or take away an appropriate consequence. Now, I've seen this, unfortunately, in family situations for years, but, but we do this now in the church as an outreach method. We run interference for certain people. I heard people say this to me through the years. I really love Legacy Church. This is through the years. I love Legacy Church, but I can't bring my friends here because if my friends come here, they may feel guilty. So here's what you've done. You have, you have run interference for the Holy Ghost. 
Because you're afraid that they will hear something that they'll feel guilty about because your main concern is that they like where you go to church, where your main concern is that they hear the gospel and that they come to repentance. This is the mentality that's got to begin to shift in us. We ought to be saying if they feel conviction, glory to God, the Holy Ghost is here. So we underwrite people's rebellion. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. If, if he's going to say anything tough, we'll make sure, you know, you don't hear that. 2 Corinthians 7, 8. And we're wrapping up. Listen to this. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. I always love Paul. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, that's a typical preacher. I, you, know, you, hate, you don't want someone just to feel bad, but in some ways you're going, well, good. I'm glad you still have a conscience. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, but then listen, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to what? Repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, you've met people that weren't sorry before God. They were sorry they were caught. That's the sorrow of the world. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Listen to me when I tell you this, that he says to them, yes, you felt guilty. Yes, you were under conviction. Yes, it wasn't pleasant. I get all of those things, but he says, now think about it. All of those feelings came to you, but it cleansed you. It freed you. It transformed you. It changed you. You're a different person. You're not, you're not this person these days that just comes along, slaps Jesus on your life, and you're just as dysfunctional as the world. That's not the gospel. Jesus said that the Son has come to make us free. Those that are free are free indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. What we want to feel good with are chains. I'm getting my passion back. We're going to pick it up here next week. But why spend any time on this? It's because I believe revival's coming. These are the sounds. You're hearing, the, the, these are just the initial sounds of revival. That's what re revival isn't just feathers show up on the floor. Or gold dust manifests in light. Revival isn't just somebody comes and prays for you and you get to go out in the spirit and you're laying there for 30 minutes. Revival isn't that supernatural joy may manifest and you get laughter. I'm not even, I'm not even disparaging these things. I'm not saying they can't happen, don't happen. They aren't credible. I'm not even going down that road yet. All I'm simply saying to you is this, that real revival will Will, will affect us in ways that we see lives that were lost, changed, dysfunctional, bound, being set free. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And we can't be the ones who keep enabling 
the lost, that keep enabling the blind, that keep enabling the broken, that keep enabling the dysfunctional. We love them, yes, but our love is leading them to the healer, to the forgiver, to the transformer, to the converter. Taking them and saying, I'm not walking with you in your rebellious direction. I'm saying repent and let's walk a new direction. Following me? We're going to pick it up here next week and learn about what it means to say truth to our neighbor. And guess what? We're going to do it in a kind, loving, winsome, joyful, but we're going to be integral. Stand with me, will you please? Amen.